what a great thing to be doing together. I know it's separated out and we're in different houses and so on, but uh, this, is, this is really quite a profound thing that we do. Uh, let me pray before we uh, consider God's word together. So let's get heads in and, and pay attention. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask please that in the midst of these difficult circumstances, as we're all dislocated and separated into our houses and so on, please that you might bless this time. Help us engage well, help me speak clearly and truthfully, uh, help me please you in all that's said uh, and help us please uh, grow to know you better and grow to be like Jesus more and we pray it in his name. Amen. Well here's the big thing, what do you do when God seems hidden? What do you do when God seems hidden? You can't see him. I mean there are some who do say that they often see God or feel God or hear God or have visions or see miracles and so on. But the vast majority of us live life without having any amazing miracles. Um, the vast majority is just get on with life, doing ordinary things, living ordinary life and don't have visions, don't have words, don't have... God just seems hidden. Where is he? Now what do we do with that? What, what do you do with, if you're someone who loves the Lord Jesus, you're in relationship with this God and he doesn't seem present, what do you do? Does it mean he's not in your life? I mean, what is it with the hiddenness of God? It is a real thing. Uh, for most of us, God does seem hidden. What do you do with that? Have you felt this kind of thing? Especially now. It's, it's probably more intense when you're going through difficult times. You look around our world at the moment, I guess you're connected, you're seeing what's happening in Afghanistan, um, COVID, uh, the, the riots, the, the increase in numbers. It all just, it looks like it's all going insane. Where's God? The hiddenness of God. You know, we're starting a new book tonight. We're starting the book of Esther, which is the second book of the Bible named after a woman. It's a great book that we'll look together at. And one of the dominant things about this book is the hiddenness of God. Because not once through the whole book is his name mentioned. There's no reference to God, his name's not used. There's only a very slight possibility that people prayed to him. But that's it, God is not ever mentioned throughout this book. It's one of the things that's astonishing about the book in the whole collection of the bible there's 66 books all written uh, inspired by god to introduce us to himself to bring us into relationship with himself uh, in all those 66 books this is the one that actually never mentions god but it's a very book that's written by god to introduce us to himself but he never even talks about himself what is with that well here it is that's its great strength it's a funny thing that kind of people wrestle with. Why is there no mention? But that actually is the thing that makes it such a great book for us. It reveals the very power of God. It's much more powerful that God's name is not even mentioned. The hidden God. And it makes it hugely relevant because this book is our book. This book is the book that makes sense of our experiences of life where God seems hidden to us. So really, really helpful to be going through this, massively relevant. Now, as we jump into it, let me give some comments about the book itself, the background to it. Uh, give you the, have a look at chapter 1, verse 1. This will help us see it. Now, grab your Bibles, open them up, chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened 
during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. So this is what happened. That set of words there, that phrase, is kind of a, a, a usual way of talking about, I'm now going to tell you about history. So this is what happened. This is not a, this is not a fairy story. This is something, this is, that's the normal language used to describe historical events, which this book is. Uh, it'll be the record of things that happened in the, in the time of Xerxes, the great king of the Persian Empire. Now, this book is a history book. It's got no teaching in it. It's got no sort of moral lesson. It's got no proverb. Um, there's no uh, vision from God in it. It's entirely devoted to just telling about a series of events, but put together very cleverly about it, a bunch of events that happened during the reign of king, the king of Persia, a man called Xerxes, who we actually know quite a lot about outside of the Bible. There was a man called Herodotus who wrote a history of this time, who lived way back near that time, a very ancient historian so we actually know quite a bit about it and we know quite a bit about this time too because of the movie 300 I don't know if you know the movie 300 but I when it first came out I took my one of my boys to go and watch it as a kind of a bonding father and something I was traumatized I think he enjoyed it but 300 tells the story of this exact period in history and in fact the king of uh, Persia who attacks the Spartan army it's this king that uh, is being referred to. Now, I hope I don't need to tell you that you don't need to, you ought not do your history from Hollywood and its movies, but it is trying to portray these real events. Uh, so we know a lot about it. Now, let me give you some uh, timing for this. The history of the time of Xerxes, the man who ruled over 127 provinces, uh, it's a long time after Ruth. So we've just spent the last four weeks looking at the book of Ruth and uh, uh, let, let me see if I can give you a timeline, see if we can click through to that for us. Would that work for us? Great. Uh, what we've got here is a timeline. So uh, <laughs> Ruth is here in the book of Judges around that era, so about 1200 BC, 1200 years before Jesus. And if you move along quite a way, you get to Esther, who is about 480 BC. Uh, so only about 500 years before Jesus. There's a big gap of time between those two things. You see, Ruth is before the kings of Israel. Uh, Esther is after the kings of Israel. So Ruth gives birth to and great-grandson and so on. You end up with David the king. And there's a number of kings of Israel that run through all of that history. The kings rise up, but then they get defeated in battle by a man called Nebuchadnezzar who takes the Israelites off into exile. All of this has happened before Esther's even come along, taken off into exile. They're in exile for many decades uh, in a place called Persia. So let's chuck the map up. Let me give you a sense of Persia. So that whole big coloured thing on your screen there is the, is the empire of Persia. In the centre of it, you'll see the word Susa. That's the capital city where King Xerxes is now. And you'll see it's a long way away from Jerusalem. Um, but this is where the Israelites were taken. So let's drop that off now. This is where the Israelites were taken into that place, Susa. Um, but after being in exile there for some decades, uh, they were then allowed to go back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem, in the early 500s, 530 or so. And many went back, but some stayed. Some stayed in Babylon, in Susa. And uh, 
Esther, it's probably her grandparents' age who went back to Jerusalem. And she's some decades after they've all first gone back. And there are a number of Israelites still living in Persia, in Susa, the capital city. Now, this is about something that happened in those real places. It's about something that happened during the time of Xerxes. Now, what's the thing that happened? Well, it's massive. It's huge. The whole 10 chapters of this book uh, revolve around this massive thing. And I'll tell you what it is, it's there in chapter 3. Turn over to chapter 3 and you'll see it. Uh, We won't get to this for a couple of weeks yet, but chapter 3, just to anticipate, verse 8, let me read it to you. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep to themselves separate. Their customs, customs are different from those of all other people and they do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring and his, from his finger and gave it to Haman, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, he said, and do with the people as you please. Come across to verse 17, oh, verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month. This is the thing that happened during the reign of King Xerxes. There was a royal law sent by him at the instigation of a man called Haman to wipe out every Jew throughout the world, issued from Susa in Persia that will affect all of those who have gone back to Jerusalem to re-establish God's temple, his city, his people. Now you might find yourself thinking this is just too, you know, it's That's an extraordinary thing. It's surely fiction. Well, Second World War, Adolf Hitler undertook to wipe out the Jews of his day. Six million were killed by him. Given the Second World War, we now know that this kind of thing is not unbelievable, what humans are capable of. And so back then, there was a hatred of the Jews, And at the instigation of this man who hated the Jews, there was a determination by one who had the power to do it. Wipe out every Jew. This is the big thing of the book. How will the Jews survive? Now, the writer, the man who wrote Esther, uh, wrote it long after these events. And so he knows that the Jews did survive. And all the people reading this, of course, knew that the Jews survived. The big question really is not will they, but how do they? How did it come about that a people who had no power, no king, no great army, no influence, how did it come about that this insignificant, hated people survived this? Especially given the power that was against them. And that, I want to suggest to you, is the first chapter of the book. 
It's to help us understand who it is who issued this decree, who it is who is the powerful King Xerxes, that we might understand the threat that is genuine and the power of that threat against the Jews. It's very clever the way the writer's done this. We don't hear about the threat, the threat doesn't emerge until chapter 3, but the first two chapters set us up to be ready for it and to see the hand of a hidden God in the midst of it all. Let me take you back to chapter 1 then. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. This is, this is a ruler of great power. He ruled the majority of the ancient world as an absolute despotic monarch. This is not an elected official with a law behind him and courts and so on. This man's word was law. He throws a party. And verse 4, it goes for 180 days. That's six months. He is wealthy beyond imagining. In fact, history tells us that uh, when the next nation came and took over, the, the number of gold bars, the number of silver bars, just as a matter of history, is astonishing. And he's the one who calls to the nobles and officials and the princes of the world, and they come. And historically, this party, verse 4, this 180 days, corresponds actually according to Herodotus it corresponds to him preparing to attack Greece which is actually recorded for us in the movie 300 um, and so this is likely in anticipation of that extraordinary uh, event that campaign this is the most powerful Persian king who ever lived and his word is law this is one of the reasons I think we're told about the episode with his wife that happens from verse 10. Did you see it? Let me read it to you. On the seventh day, when the king Xerxes was in high spirit from wine, this man's drunk, he commands the seven eunuchs who serve him, verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the peoples and the nobles, for she was a good looker. But when the, accountant, when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. So what you have here is the man in the midst of his high spirits calls for his wife to be his trophy wife to be brought, brought to be paraded before his drunk mates. She refuses to come. We don't know why. We're not told why. Was it because she was a woman of great dignity and self-respect and wouldn't let herself be dragged through that episode? Could be. Or was it because she was a woman of great pride? We don't know. And the irony here, of course, is here's the great ruler of the world who can call all the nobles and the princes and the powers, but he can't rule his wife. He is, verse 12 and 13, furious. He burns with anger. Now, his wife had her moment. She refused the great king. But she was no equal to a husband. And he crushes her. So after consultation, she's forbidden from ever setting foot again in the world uh, throne room. His command, you see, this is the point, his command is the power in their world. He speaks and it happens. He is the power. But his power is a fragile power, which makes it all the more terrifying. It's the power of a grown-up child who just wields his power without reason, without care, without thought. It's an insecure kind of power, which I think explains uh, his rule for marriages throughout the empire. Uh, if you've been reading through Esther before, you will have noticed this, that um, 
There was a great concern that if news got out that the wife of the queen, the queen, the wife of the husband, the king, if she can refuse her husband, then every woman in every household will refuse their husbands, and that'll be dreadful. And so, verse 21, the king and his nobles were pleased to send dispatches, verse 22, all the parts of the kingdom, uh, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler over his own household using his native tongue. He determines what language is spoken in the house and he's the boss, says this edict. Now, what is that? Well, I think, again, it's a demonstration that this king is the Lord of all. He says, and it is, and his rule is, verse 19, a law that cannot be repealed. His word is the unbroken word. But what do, you, what do we make actually just of his command that every man should be the ruler over his own household? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And given that at this time in our culture there's such right concern around the issues of abuse and oppression uh, in marriage and family life, I think it's worth us reflecting just for a short time on this. I think this command is an is, not an ought. That is, the author of Esther is just telling us what he did and he's not intending by that to give us a lesson on how marriage should be. He's just telling us about the nature of this king and their insecurity and fear. Now, how do I know that's the case? Well, three things, very quickly. The first one is that the king issuing this command is a brute. He's the enemy of Israel. He's not one that anyone in Israel wants to emulate, to follow. And he calls for his wife, drunk with his own power, to parade her as an object. The whole thing is tainted. His decree is driven by anger. Chapter 2, verse 1 tells you that eventually his fury subsides. This command is given in the context of his own fury and anger and fueled by the fear of the men of the court. This is the power of men gone to seed. It's not a good decree. Uh, second thing I just draw attention to is the teaching of Jesus, of course, who critiques this very exercise of power, in a sense. In Matthew chapter 20, he talks about the rulers of the Gentiles and how they lord it over others. Jesus is not against, against leadership uh, of men and women. He's not against people leading. He's against leadership being used as lordship to lord it over others, to dominate. Jesus sets us the model who came not to be served, but to serve. There's the second reason why this is just, this is not evidence of what God would have, it's evidence of the power of this king gone to seed. Third thing is, of course, the New Testament's teaching about husbands and wives. Husbands, the New Testament, the Bible says, are to love their wives, not dominate them. They're to love their wives and lay down their lives for their wives. This is an is, not what ought to be. That is to say, the scriptures very often just report things that happened without us intending to see that as an endorsement of what happened. It, the, the scriptures tell us about the words of Satan, truly. Not in any way thinking that we would receive those as the, as the truth. No, this is what is. And what is is a king who is terrifying in his power who treats people as commodities, as objects, who isn't driven by principle and justice, but by whim. And he doesn't 
he doesn't like women. Now the scene is set. What hope for Israel? Who have got no king, no army, no power. Who have had a law decreed by the one whose law is unbreakable. How to break the unbreakable law of the king of Persia, who is a man of great power. That's the big question of this book. The scene is set. But notice, right here in chapter 1, in the midst of the revelation of this great king's power and the threat it is to Israel, is the beginnings of this great king's undoing. The storytelling is so clever. I mean, the events are so cleverly orchestrated. You see, what you have here is an angry king who gets rid of his queen, showing his pride, his power, his pettiness, but at the very same time, leaving him with a vacancy. He now has no queen. And he needs to replace that queen. So enter the two main characters of these events who will be the means of his undoing. Esther and Mordecai. These are the two characters that actually play the key part through all that will happen from here on in. You see, by chapter 2, the king has recovered from his fury, verse 1. And he's remembered his need. He's, he, I've now no longer got a queen. Verse 2, let there be a search made for, a, for beautiful young virgins for the king. Three criteria. They need to be young, beautiful and a virgin. And so the search is on and they set up. You've seen Bachelor, I assume. Repent if you have. But if you've seen Bachelor, what you've got here is Bachelor on steroids. All right? it's, it's the Bachelor, the king, who needs to find a beautiful young woman virgin in this instance and he's going to get them put into a house but here in this house it's going to be a 12-month house and at the end of 12 months they'll be paraded for him just just pick this up bachelor's a horrible show i think it's a terrible offense to women everywhere i can't believe it's still around it's an offense and so was this chapter 2 verse 5 we're introduced to mordecai Mordecai is someone in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And he, verse 6, had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. This takes us back to that earlier history of the exile, uh, some years before the events of Esther. So Mordecai is a man who'd been caught up in all of that, been brought from his home into this place. And he's a kind man, verse 7. He'd taken into his own family his young cousin, a woman who was an orphan, who'd lost father and mother, and he'd received this young woman as his own daughter and raised her. He's a kind man. And so we meet Esther. Who is this young woman? The orphan, who was, we're told, one who had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And, we're told, Verse 9, had a great personality. We're told twice, actually, verse 9 and verse 15, that after being placed in the house with the other contestants, verse 9, she wins the favour of the one who ran the house. And in verse 15, we're told she wins the favour of everyone who sees her. So you could put it like this, she's the complete package 
if you're one who wants that kind of package. And the king wanted that kind of package. He was one who'd not read the book of Proverbs, that beauty is fleeting and charm is deceptive, but a woman of noble character, there is something great there. But he was superficial and he wanted the whole package. Two things now happen, and it's critical for all that follows. Verse 17, Esther wins. She wins the king's heart. The king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. She won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. She now becomes the queen of this vast empire. A young Jewish woman who was an orphan, raised by her kindly cousin, Mordecai. She is now in this place astonishing. And at the end of the chapter, from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, Mordecai gets into the good books of this king, literally, because of his connections to Esther. You see, look at verse 21. During this time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, which is a place that suggests he was part of the governing community of Susa. Uh, he was at the king's gate. He discovers, he overhears a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. All was not well in the Persian Empire. But verse 22, Mordecai found out about the plot, told Queen, es queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when it was all investigated, it was, at the end of verse 23, recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now, that little piece of information, tuck it away, because it will become critical to the whole movement of these events. And so chapters 1 and 2 finishes. With Esther, the queen, and Mordecai, with the ear of the king through the queen and in the good books of the king. Now this is only just getting started. We haven't got to the great terror of the king's law to destroy the Jews, but we're seeing the pieces begin to put in, be put into place even before the problem arises. And that's important to notice. So for us, what do we do? What do we make of this? I think I've got three things. I haven't counted, but we'll see how we go. First one. I think these two chapters give us some obvious warnings about power and how power can go to seed and be abused. Beware the love of power. We've hit this in previous weeks, but just keep... Beware the love of power because all of you have it in some fashion, some more than others. Don't despise power. We're living in a world at the moment that... Um, Kind of, kind of sees the abuses of power and is, there's one of the kind of moods around the place that says the answer to people's abuse of power is to get rid of anyone having power. Let's get, a, get rid of any hierarchies, anyone over another. It's this kind of idea that's roaming around the place but it's, it's a foolishness that cannot work because there are more than one kinds of power. There's positional power. But there's also information power, moral power, the power of strength, uh, the, the power of coercion. There's all kinds of different power. And all of you will have one or other of those kinds of power. Humans have different power. 
which is exercised for, appropriately, the good of others. Don't buy into the foolishness of the modern world that we need to get rid of power. Rather, buy into the teaching of Jesus, who says the key is how you use it. Power's like money. Money's not bad. It's the love of money that's the problem. It's the misuse of money. Power, used well. How do you use power well? By using it for the good of others, to serve others. You know, um, Stephen Bidolph is a man who writes uh, about men. And one of the comments he makes is about boys to men. And he says, boys use their power for themselves. Life is about them. Growing up to be a man is to use your power to serve others for the good of others. Grow to be like that. Women. Beauty is fleeting. Charm is deceptive. A noble character is what counts. Pursue nobility and depth and riches. We come back to this theme again. There's the first one. A warning about power. Second one. This is the big one. God is not mentioned once through this book. But as we will see, on every page, in every chapter, he is there at every moment. You see, notice again the just, it just so happened moments. We saw it in the book of Ruth. You see it again in the book of Esther. It just happened like this, the coincidences, that the king's pride is furious at his wife, his queen, and so casts her off. And the attendants just happen to suggest a new way of finding a queen, a competition amongst all the young women of the empire. That's not the way they normally did it. It just so happened they did that. And it just so happened that Esther was connected to a man, Mordecai, who had some connections into the royal court so that he heard of this and was able to bring Esther into it because Esther was orphaned and just happened to be adopted by Mordecai who had this connection. And it just so happened she wins. And Mordecai just happens to overhear a plot at the city gate and just so happens to have a daughter, a woman like a daughter to him, is now the queen, so he has her ear, he goes and speaks to her, who speaks directly to the king, so that Mordecai is directly connected now to the king, and in the good books, it just so happened that these things all occurred. The passage is riddled with these moments, the whole book is riddled with it, and it's unavoidable that behind the foolishness and the pride and the different circumstances that are recorded for us in this is the hidden hand of God. The sovereign, all-powerful, purposeful God who rules every moment of our lives. You see, this book is about God, right? But God's not even mentioned. King Xerxes is mentioned 100 times in this book. God is not mentioned once. But who has the real power? Just because you're mentioned a lot, the real power is the unassuming power, is the power that doesn't even need to be paraded or spoken of. And the very fact that God is not spoken of drives home the fact that his power is of such immensity that he controls everything without being seen.
the hidden God, and shows the truth of Proverbs 21, that the heart of the king is in the Lord's hands, and he turns it wherever he will like a river course. Don't stand against this God. He can't be ignored forever. All of us will come before him and his will cannot be thwarted, ever. He can't be undone. He is God, we're not. We live in his world, a world ruled by him, a world that he sovereignly is moving towards its appointed end. And the appointed end is that one day all of us will stand in his presence to give an account of our lives. We cannot escape this God. He cannot be ignored. He will bring history to that place and us there. You can get right with him now though. It will be too late then. How? Because he saved this people. He saved the Jews at this time in history. Do you know it mattered that he saved these people people the Jews back then because he'd made a promise in Genesis chapter 12 that the Jews would be his people and that he would bless them and anyone who cursed them he would curse and he's God he keeps his promises it mattered to him to keep this people safe and part of the message of the book of Esther is that you cannot kill my people you, you cannot eradicate my people from the earth I'm God it matters that he keeps this people he's promised and he will fulfill but it matters that he keeps this people because the saving of this people makes possible the coming of the saviour of the whole world. The saviour who comes to save us. Because from this nation who are rescued from this plight comes the Lord Jesus Christ, a Jew. The great, 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 great grandchild of Ruth who comes to live a life in our world, to die a death in our place under the penalty of God and who by his resurrection makes it possible through his death and resurrection for us to be forgiven and reconciled back to God. It is now possible because God saved this people and brought from them the saviour of all for us to be reconciled to this God. Don't put it off. He can't be ignored forever. We need now to be right with him through Jesus, and we can. This God is the God of the universe, the God of this world, the hidden God, yes. But he is behind every chapter, every page, working. That's the message of every sermon that we'll look at over the next few weeks. But what particularly is the message of these two chapters? Third. This all-powerful God goes before his people, goes before his people in a hidden way. You see, it's not till chapter 3 that the great problem emerges, that we even see there's a problem, that a problem even exists. It's not till chapter 3. But the book starts telling us in chapters 1 and 2 that God has already put into place the things needed to solve the problem before it's even emerged. God is the God who goes before his people, 
protecting his people, meeting their needs before they even have the need in a hidden way. Just as he's done for each of us. Do you know if you're someone uh, watching who, who has found forgiveness in the Lord Jesus with God, you've bowed the knee to him and repented and turned back to God, if you're someone like that, then God has gone before you even had that faith, that response, to get you to have that response. And if you look back through your life, you will see all the things that God has done to move you to be saved. The people he's put in place, the parents he gave you, the, the thing that happened at school or university, the uh, conversations that occurred, the feeling you had that I need. God put all of that there. And in fact, he's gone before all of us centuries before we even lived with the coming of Jesus. He anticipated our need before we were even born. And in fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he anticipated our need before he even created the world. You know, that thing that you're going through right now, that terrible circumstance that you're in, God has already put in place the things necessary to bring good out of it. He goes before us in a hidden way. You see, notice this again to finish with. Like Ruth, the key actors in this drama didn't know God was doing anything in their lives. Esther didn't see the hand of God in the midst of her losing her parents, being orphaned and being adopted by Mordecai. She didn't see any great purpose or plan in all of that. She didn't see God. God wasn't mentioned. God didn't give her a word. He didn't give her a vision. There was no prayer for guidance. Mordecai just adopted this lady without having received some command from God to do it. He just did what was the best thing he could do, what was kind. And yet behind all of those things was the hidden hand of God at work for great good, to bring great blessing. You know, I don't doubt in the midst of Esther losing her parents, she asked day after day, where was God? What was he doing? Mordecai, as he chooses to adopt, would have experienced years of silence from God. Where is God? Hidden. And here's the thing, this is normal Christian living, the invisible hand of God. You know, many Christians can't believe that, they're desperate for certainty, they, 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 they want to live by sight, not by faith, and so they want to have sight experiences to prove that God's there, they pursue the miracles, the experiences, the, the voices, the feelings, they pursue all of these things to convince themselves that God is there and He's for us, and they go to churches where they hear this talked about, where the Bible has all these extraordinary things, and that can be yours as well, and they're taught to think this is normal for Christians, you ought to experience, I've experienced it, you ought to have these things, and and terrible insecurity is pursued in these things. But when you read the Bible, you see Esther lived a whole life without seeing the hidden hand of God. Mordecai, Ruth, Boaz, Naomi. Years went by. How did we know God was in their lives, hidden though he was? Two things. 
because of the promises of God, back to Genesis 12, that he would protect his people, and hindsight to see that he did it. These aren't random events. They are the fulfilment of the promises of God. How do you know God's in your life, even though you can't see him? Two reasons. The promises of God and hindsight. The promises of God that he has set his affection upon everyone who turns and puts their faith in Jesus. He'll work everything together for the good of those who love him. There's the promise of God. And hindsight. I've seen through history God work for his people. And I've seen through my own personal history God work for good in ways that I could never have imagined. Brothers and sisters, can I encourage you tonight even to look back over your life. It might be in the midst of despair, the midst of depression, you're feeling burdened and there's a horrible... In the midst of that, think back and, and see how God has worked in your life in a hidden way. But he's moved circumstances to bring you and grow you and change you and deepen you and bring you to faith even. Think on those things. Give thanks for those things. And don't chafe under the ordinary. That's how most of us who are followers of Jesus live our lives. Don't chafe under it. Because that's normal Christian living. The hidden hand of God. The real hand of God. But hidden. Known only by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the way you graciously reveal that you are at work in our lives. We thank you for the power of this book that helps us see your hiddenness, but the truth of your involvement. Help us see that in our own lives and take great comfort from it. Help us please learn to live by faith, not sight. That we might live our days full of joy and gladness because we know you are personally engaged in every moment of our day. Thank you for this and we pray please you give us great comfort and strength from it. In Jesus' name, Amen.